Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 31, I want to speak on the theme, the look of love, the look of love. Luke's gospel, chapter 22, and verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And now in the same chapter, verse 59. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Over and over again, the New Testament emphatically declares that the love of God is powerful to change us if we would only humble ourselves and receive it. Now, there are exceptions to the rule, but logic teaches that exceptions prove the rule. If you are to know the transformational love of God, you must first see your abject poverty of soul. Sir, you are spiritually destitute. You are in a place of absolute weakness. This is the repeated doctrine of Scripture. Even our blessed Lord in His most famous sermon begins with the beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this is not as easy as it sounds. It falls off the lips easier than it is to believe it. There's just something innate in us that does not want to face the fact of our total, absolute poverty of soul. There's something naturally that resists the idea that I cannot aid or assist God in my redemption. And even though we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, the fact nevertheless remains that I am absolutely helpless to do that unless God strengthens me with His power. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you, both to will and do of His good pleasure. And while we know we are weak, our problem is we do not know how weak we are. 
I am absolutely confident of this, of this, both by Scripture and my own experience, that we simply cannot even know our weaknesses apart from God's grace revealing them to you. That's how weak you are. You're not even weak enough to discern your weaknesses. And if you are not humble enough to receive the fact of what you really are in and of yourself, utterly unable, then here's what's going to happen. Blessed are the poor in spirits going to be shoved off onto the sinner only as the entryway into the kingdom of God and no longer applicable to the saint. Meanwhile, the Christian marches to attempt victory not realizing that within him there is no native power to win the victory. And the end result, of course, is what many of you are experiencing this morning. Spiritual frustration, disappointment, and failure. Oh, my dear friends, if you think you have achieved some semblance of victory, well, then you're lifted up in spiritual pride, which leads to the shutting down of the experience of God's love. There's no way to experience the unconditional love of God without first seeing your unconditional poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is not just the entryway into the kingdom, but it is the preeminent distinctive of all those who are in the kingdom. For example, let me help you by giving you an illustration. It's my hope and firm assurance that you fathers love your children unconditionally. But let us suppose you have one child that is determined to gain your pleasure by their own power. The consequence will be this. Your unconditional love will go unseen by them. They will not notice it. Why is that? Well, it's simple. They will not see that they are most loved and accepted by you because, well, they're your child. It's the only reason you need to always love them. But they're trying to earn your love. They're trying to, by their performance, gain the affection. And when you do show them affection, all that does is reinforce in them that they can by your, their power gain your love. And the terrible mistake that is often made is that they interpret their behavior as the motive of your love, which strips unconditionality from your love. They don't feel the power of your love because every time you show love towards them, they think they earned it, which only increases their exertion to earn more love and the negative consequence is they conclude that they are only deemed lovable if they perform to some imagined standard. And the same is true with our receiving the undeserved love of God. If we think we can earn God's love through our performance, well then, my dear friend, any love you do experience, you will credit it to your own doing. This is, this is a subtle, subtle work of the enemy in our own flesh. 
This is why so many dear saints struggle with the unconditional love of God. They're trying to earn His unmerited favor, but are constantly failing. And then there are some of you in this very room, you think you are somehow achieving it, that you are passing the mustard, that you are able to do just enough to gain God's good pleasure in you, that you merit the blessings. Look at how busy you are for God, how faithful you are in His service. But the problem is, you've never come to terms with really who you are and His great love for you. And one such saint who struggled like this was a man named Peter. And if we purposely inspect and dissect Peter's great fall, you will see a twofold problem an over evaluation of his own strength and a devaluation of God's love for him. The more I serve him and his people, the more I see this deadly combination in the saints. As a true child of God, it's not that Peter didn't see his depravity. He did. When Jesus performed the miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, Peter saw something that caused him to throw himself at Jesus' feet and declare to him, De Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was overwhelmed with the holiness of Christ, and therefore he was, was overwhelmed with his sin. But like some of you, if not all of us, it's a matter of time, just a matter of time before we lose sight of the reality of our corruption and we overinflate our contribution to our spiritual development. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Are you there, my friend, this morning? Well, you're not alone. Over and again, we see this in this dear man of God named Peter. Let me give you just one example before we really get into the text. It's Matthew chapter 16. You know what I'm going to refer to you, don't you? Peter makes his great confession of sin. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commends him, and after his commendation, Peter dares, dares to intervene in the divine covenant of redemption by counseling one of the participants of that covenant, by denying the Savior's substitutionary death sufficient for the salvation of God's elect. How dare he? But he dared. After seeing the miraculous catch of fish, you would think, how could Peter think that his own wisdom and prudence was far greater than the Lord? But somehow he did. I could ask you the same question. How are you being saved out of the depth of your sin? Could come to the conclusion that you could help God and counsel Him on how best to take care of you. And yet here we are, like Peter, doing the very same thing, yet in different ways. Peter had witnessed, perhaps by Matthew 16, hundreds of miracles, the feeding of the thousands, the walking of the water, in which he did himself. But when his faith failed, he sank, which would mean make me think that by this time he's really learned his depravity. He's really learned how weak he is. But no, it's only more profound and incredible that he would still be full of himself. And so we see in our text the evening of the denial of Jesus. 
And on that night, Jesus warns Peter. Look at the text, verse 31 through 34. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But, but Peter, with his inflated view of himself and his low view of God's love for him, resisted and he argued with the Lord. Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Matthew's version. <laughs> It's even more revealing. Peter compared himself to the other disciples, assuring Jesus that he, Jesus, was wrong about him, Peter. The other men may stumble and fall, but not him. Listen to what he says in Matthew 26, 33. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Pretty emphatic, isn't it? And so, in loving compassion, Jesus warns again in specific detail what Peter would sadly do before the crow, rooster would crow twice. He said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Peter, you're not going to deny me once. You're going to do it two more times. And again, Matthew as well as Mark tell us that Peter was determined, determined not to let Jesus have the last word. Mark states that Peter spoke more vehemently a second time in his defense. Mark 14, 31, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Here we see Peter's refusal to embrace his weakness. This is the fundamental flaw, not just with Peter, but with all of us. Do I dare paint with such a broad brush and include you too? Yes, I must. It includes me, I know. Most of my spiritual difficulties are attributive to this fact that I have forgotten my own weakness. Let me be more frank. I have forgotten what I cannot do, and that is absolutely nothing without Him. I've forgotten. I, too, have become too proud. I've become too high in my own estimation. I've learned how to do this. Let me tell you, every time I get up to preach, I have to fight with myself. I have to fight myself. I don't know how many times I've preached now over these almost 40 years. No, I don't know. You'd think the more you did it, the better you'd be at it. But I've learned something. I've learned that without Him, this is all an exercise in futility. It's all wasted. There's only one power and one power alone sufficient to change our hearts, my heart, your heart here this morning. Only one power, sir, sufficient to turn you from darkness to light, to save you from your sins, and it isn't your power. It's not the power of the preacher. It's not the power of the church. And when you refuse to embrace your weakness, you miss the experience of God's love. Peter's high view of his devotion to God blinded him to God's devotion to him. Like the child I illustrated just a few moments ago, Peter could not see God's great devotion to him because he was obsessed with proving how devoted he was to God. 
That's what possessed him. That's what moved him. I'm going to prove to you, Jesus, you're not right. I'm the one that's right here. I know that I can do this. I know I can withstand the, withstand the temptation. And beloved, neither can you see God's love for you if you are more concerned about your love for God. I believe this is the majority concern of most Christians. Our love for God. Should we be concerned? Of course. The greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, indeed, we should be concerned about our love for God, but not more than His great love for us. When will we learn that our love for Him is merely a reflexive, a reflex of the heart in response to His love for us. But again, this is the majority concern, our love. We're here measuring our love, trying to gauge our love, comparing ourselves one with another. But God's love, as far as we're concerned, is settled. We know God loves us. It's our love that's vacillating, isn't it? And so the focus shifts from God's love for us to our love for God. And when this occurs, God's love becomes more difficult to experience because His love becomes based upon merit now. The more I feel I love Him, the more I feel loved by Him. And if I feel I love Him little, then I feel I'm loved by Him little. Peter was determined to prove his love to Christ. Blinded by his own determination, he failed to see the love of God. It's right here in the text. Look at Luke 22, 31 through 32. Here is love, vast as an ocean, right? Staring him in the face, and he can't even see it. Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus loved Peter so much that he would not have his disciple blindsided. He would not have him unprepared for the hour of temptation. Even in the garden, he again exhorts he and the others, pray that you enter not into temptation. He loved Peter so that he warns him. He would have him avert this, if at all possible. But there it is. I've, I've prayed for you. It's most interesting when you come to John 17 and you note who Jesus says he will pray for and whom he will not pray for. He clearly delineates it. I pray for those whom you've given me and those who will believe on their testimony. But then he also just as clearly delineates who he will not pray for. I do not pray for the world. And in that category is one man named Judas Iscariot. He says, Father, I have kept those whom you've given to me in your name, except the son of perdition. Except. The Greek grammar tells us that this is of another, this is a, another of a different kind. He's not one of the chosen elect. He's not been loved before the foundation of the world. Jesus does not pray for Judas, Judas, but he prays for Peter. Why? Because Peter has been the object of his love forever. Forever. And he loved him to the end. And so he warns him. He prays for him. He loves him. But Peter rejected 
accepting his own weakness. And therefore, he rejects his need for the love of God. Please hear me. Please hear me. It always works this way. There are no exceptions here. When you reject your need, when you refuse to own it, automatically you have rejected your need of God's love. And thereby you close your heart to the movement of the Holy Spirit within who would make you to know the Father's love. I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. In essence, Peter said, Thank you very much, Lord, but I, I don't need your prayer in these matters. I've got this. You just wait and see. <laughs> when the going gets tough for everyone else, old Peter will be right there standing beside you. You just wait and see. Dear ones, the love of God must be received in weakness. The greatest thing that could happen in this conference is all of us to be humbled. To be brought low again. You've got to come to the place of complete desperate dependency upon God alone. No trust in your righteousness. No confidence in your obedience. Nothing in you recommending you to the favor of God. Nothing but His amazing, unconditional love. Spiritual transformation and reformation demand that you be willing to be loved by God undeservedly. There is none of this, Father, watch me and make, let me make you proud today. None of that. You'll never be willing until you see that there's nothing else for you to do but to accept His love. Dear friend, dear sinner, you are outside of the covenant of grace. You're not among His people. For this very reason, you will not accept His love as it is for you because you see yourself above it and not needing it. I've got this. I'm a good person. I'm as good as the next man. In fact, there are some people I've heard of, even in the church, who stand in pulpits, who I feel like I've done better than them. Most of us are afraid to see ourselves as God must see us, naked and bare with all our flaws, frailties, and failures, visible to feel God's searching gaze and feel His love requires this awkward sense of embracing Wiley, what you are, a person who will never, ever deserve grace and cannot please the Heavenly Father in your utter weakness and inability. You just can't do it. You'll never be changed until you face the truth about yourself and accept it and be okay with it. Some of you will be offended by this, and I, I apologize beforehand, but really I don't think the problem's with me or even how I say it. We have to be able to come to the place where we're okay with being sinners saved by grace. Amen. Even when you're in your glorified, perfected state, you will long remember that you do not deserve to walk upon these hallowed streets and to gather around the Father's throne in jubilation and worship, you will always remember there of what you were here, and you will then therefore appreciate the love of God much more than you do now and here. 
Self-delusion hinders Christ-like transformation. The love of God must be received as it is, both unconditional and undeserved. And that's the vulnerability, isn't it, that we resist? We don't like that kind of vulnerability. There's a risk that the risk is I lose control. I lose control when I'm that vulnerable. I'm not in charge. But that's the amazing thing about love, the love of God. It not only controls, but it controls to your very best and betterment. Well, Peter's conversion and his experience of the love of God is what I want to direct your attention to now. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Once again, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I want to ask you, how can you know God's love in a real way? How do, you, how, how do you experience God's love in a real way? Not just the knowledge thereof. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm talking about you know it. You know that you know He loves you. Who here this morning would say, that's what I want. I want to leave today knowing that I know He loves me. How can His love soothe your broken, empty, poor heart this morning and you experience it unconditionally? Most people who call themselves Christians today believe they're loved by God based upon, listen, objective knowledge. Objective knowledge. They're assured that God must love them because that's what the Bible says or that's what their church's confessional statement says or that's what their pastor has told them. They've heard the truth and they've processed it as they would any other information. But unfortunately, they do not go on to bother themselves and ask the most vital question. It's not do you know God loves you, but is God's love real to you? Is God's love real to me? Do I know the love of God in my heart as a living reality and experience? There are two kinds of knowledge I want to discuss with you. There's actually three, but the third one has no relevance here. The first is intellectual knowledge. Intellectual knowledge is gained by the pursuit of study, Learning. It comes from reasoning and deduction. We spend the first years of our life in the academia learning geography, mathematics, history, literature, science, arts. We acquire information. We can come to know two plus two equals four. I got two apples. I had two apples. Now I got four apples. That's how we learn. It's a pursuit of the intellect through the reasoning of the mind. And when it comes to God's love, it works something like this. Are you listening? Thank you. God loves all sinners. I'm a sinner. Therefore, God loves me. For most of professing Christendom, that's all that's required to become a Christian. To make this logical syllogism work in their head. And that's why countless people on church rows are lost and undone. Please don't stop listening to me. Don't get too angry, please. I plead for your soul here. There's a second kind of knowledge 
I call it imparted or, if you please, experiential knowledge. This is a knowledge given to you from the spiritual realm. For the Christian, it refers to the knowledge directly given by the Holy Spirit. And in most cases, the Holy Spirit gives the spiritual understanding of the truth of Scripture. The immediate and direct work of the Spirit makes the truth of Scripture a living reality to you. That's experiential knowledge. You just don't know it by process of reasoning, by hearing the facts, processing them as true. But somehow conveyed to your inner man is the reality of that love. That comes from outside of you, external of you. It's not created by any ingenuity within you. Does this make sense? And so when we come to our syllogism about God's love, God loves all sinners. I'm a sinner. God loves me. But experiential knowledge is the Holy Spirit giving the sense of that love, making you to know it. Personally, really, it is God pouring out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. And in every word, in every sense of the word, it is an encounter with God. Have you encountered the living God, I ask? Are you sure? Or are you relying upon objective truth with no heart? Experiential knowledge is the tr is the reality of truth conveyed just as Jesus said in John 6. They shall be all taught of God, every man therefore that hath learned, and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Jesus promises this kind of knowledge in John chapter 16, verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and show it unto you. Those apostles had heard the objective truth for three and one half years. They had learned the truth of God's love for them in the person of Christ. But Jesus says, you need something. You need something to make that what you know in your head a, a fact that turns into life and power and impact. And it's only by the Holy Spirit. Has the Spirit breathed upon your mind and your knowledge and made that knowledge come to alive? Jesus called that the new birth. Have you been born again? This is the kind of knowledge we need to make the love of God real to us today. And it's not just necessary at the moment of conversion. I tell you, you and I need it today. We need it today like never before in this hour of encroaching darkness, in this day of great apostasy and falling away. We need to stand resolved, resolute by one fact alone. God loves me and I know it because of that inner witness of the Spirit of God Himself. And it's this kind of knowledge that transforms us. It's that perfect love that casts out all fear. To personally or experientially know the love of God is more, listen, more than a solution of logic. It's much more. It's the experience of the reality of God's love in spite of your failures or your success. It's founded on the fact of Scripture. Yes, indeed it is. 
But it transcends both intellect and belief. And it becomes this real life encounter. And that's why several of you are in dire need this morning. You've been living on facts but no substance. The diet of doctrine has not transformed your relationship with God or you. Only the Spirit of God is able to do this. He alone is sufficient. In other words, many of you are taking it by faith that God loves you without the reality of His love. It's the proverbial leap of faith which is mostly characterized as the leap into the dark. In other words, you say to yourself, I don't feel the love of God. Nevertheless, I accept it. I believe it. Now, friends, there are times in the Christian pilgrimage when the love of God seems to be a million miles away, and you must drive your stake by faith and say, heaven or hell, I do accept it whether I feel it or not. But listen carefully. You never accept that to be the norm. How many of you have? It's the way of the Christian life for you. No stirring of the soul. No lifting of the affections. No lifting of the head upward to see the gaze of Christ, the look of Christ, and His love for you. You just simply accept it. We press on. We move beyond that to experience the love of God. And that, my dear friend, when you experience, is no leap of faith into the dark. Oh, no, no, no. It's a leap into the light. Yes, faith gives way to reality now. You know it because you have experience. Now, listen carefully. Intellectual knowledge is important. It is essential to our knowing Jesus Christ and His love for us. But... Intellectual knowledge by itself does not have the capacity to change the heart. It is insufficient to make you experience the love of God. Don't, please, I plead. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisee. They had a perverted view of the sufficiency of Scripture. And such a view will leave you dead in your sins. Listen to what Jesus says to them in John 5. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of Me, but you are not willing to come to Me that you may have life. Here's the Pharisee. He believes the Word of God is just that, inspired and fallible directly from God. And he believes that it is sufficient to the point if he just believes that it's sufficient, he's saved. He has eternal life. He made the mistake of severing the Word of God from God. The Word from the Word. You see, Jesus is saying, if you really have searched the Scriptures and believe in its sufficiency, it would sufficiently point you to Me. And you would come. Experiential knowledge given to us by the Spirit Rest on intellectual belief in the truth of Scripture, yes, but it's never ever reduced to that alone. It's based upon the factual declarations of Scripture, but it is the experience of the reality of those doctrines believed. Listen again, it is a direct 
and personal encounter of the love of God, just as the apostle prayed that the Ephesians would have, and that you may know what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you hear? That you may have a knowledge that passes intellectual knowledge. Well, let's look at Peter's conversion. Verse 32. Here's the answer to you who are still yet lost in your sins. And my dear Christian brother, the answer is the same for you and I. Because in fact, Peter is a saved man. Verse 32, And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I love the New King James Version. It is a wonderful combination of the lyrical cadence of the old King James and modern expression. But here, my beloved New King James fails me, and I'm disappointed. And so I want to read it to you out of the authorized version, the King James. Now, don't worry, I'm, I'm not King James only. As my beloved and dear friend who's with the Lord, Mike Morrow, used to say, I'm not King James only, I'm just King James mostly. Listen to thee, King James, but I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, the word converted can be translated return. No, no problem. Sure, it can. But the word return comes short of explaining what truly happened to Peter the moment Christ's eyes met with Peter's eyes and his restoration in John 22. Peter had already been converted, and yet Jesus said, when thou art converted. And so our Lord's meaning is clear and undeniable. There are, guess what, many conversions in the Christian pilgrimage, in the Christian life. There are many times we change in our journey. And all these changes are in and by the gospel. The gospel in the cross is what I mean. In the cross is where this transformation comes. The cross is the center of spiritual transformation from initial conversion all the way to when we get to the celestial city. The cross is constantly converting us, changing us, transforming us. It never changes. The modus operandi is the same. And listen, listen, here it is. It is life by death. Strength by weakness. That's God's mode of operation in your life. He hasn't changed. Jesus set the precedent, and He will not change until we've been glorified. Look at Him there on Calvary's cross. The Creator who had the power of a universe in one word. And there He hangs naked, ashamed, there in ignominy, with men and women jutting out their jaws, a vulgar, vulgar gesture of derision and mockery. There he is hanging with no power, no strength, 
There He is cursed for your sins. There He is condemned in your place. He went to die for you so that when He breathed His last, that breath blew hell away. And He conquered every enemy. Every power of opposition was vanquished. Your enemies and mine as well. How did He do it? By death. And if you want to be strong in the power of the Lord and in His might, there's only one way. Through weakness. Why, even the Apostle Paul, a veteran missionary, having planted many churches and written some epistles by this time, in the 2 Corinthians of tw chapter 12, says that he learned this valuable lesson that Peter was learning here this night and the days to follow. That God's strength is perfected in my weakness. Therefore, I will rejoice in my weaknesses. Why? Because that's the way to strength. It's not the usual normal way of human human creation or ingenuity, is it? This is not the way we think. It's just the opposite. But this is the way of the cross. Listen to me. God's love will never be conditioned by you, meaning you will not be loved based upon anything you do. His love is always going to exist in Himself and not you. And you've got to be okay with that. You've got to meet Him and His great love for you at the cross. Listen, believer. At the cross, judicially, God solved your problem of sin and guilt. But His cross does more than that. It puts you in the place where you die. You die. You die to your worthiness, your goodness, your religious successes, and your ill-conceived and delusional strength. You die to that. You've got to surrender yourself to His great love displayed at Calvary if you're going to experience His love. And brother, I, 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 I didn't just need that the day I was converted. I need it right now. I need it right now. Struggling to be more loving or pleasing only removes you from Golgotha's summit. It's not the way of the gospel. Peter had to deny himself of his religious pride. He had to die. He has false and inaccurate perception of himself and embrace what he really was, a sinful failure. And so must you this morning. And as that rooster crowed and the Savior's eyes met with Peter's eyes, something would happen that would be the beginning of Peter's transformation. What did Peter see in the eyes of Christ? What was it that had this profound effect that would lead to the conversion that Jesus just hours earlier had prophesied. He saw the eyes of love. I'm not trying to be poetical or romantic here. I'm just being factual to the text. He saw the eyes of love that convinced him <laughs> that he was still profoundly loved despite his great crime. He felt the strong self-deceit and pride ripped from his heart, leaving it raw and bleeding. And such a glance from the eyes of the Lord Jesus made Peter to see the Savior as he truly was, not the way Peter wanted to see him. Now stripped of any pretense of self-strength and personal good, Peter was persuaded 
That he was loved in the very midst of his sin, in the midst of his spiritual poverty. He was loved even in failure. He was loved even in personal defeat. He was not loved because he was the first among equals or perhaps the best preacher of the apostles. Oh no, he was loved because it was God's good pleasure to love him. You see, God has this amazing capacity to love the vilest, even in the midst of the vilest of sins. Did you hear me? No, dear sinner, there is no sin too vile that his love cannot conquer. Do away. Be done with that objection and excuse. It's annihilated in the glance and the look of Christ's loving eyes. Knowing that your love like this frees you to love others. There's nothing for you to prove, nothing for you to gain. You're already loved by a measure that is infinite in degree, by the God of all love. Growing in the love of God is not some achieved accomplishment. It's a gift of amazing grace. Now back to the question. What was the power of the look of Christ? It was the look of convicting Love. Do you know what I'm talking about? Convicting love? You see, convicting love does not skirt the sin issue. He doesn't say at all, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I love you anyway, no problem. No, it doesn't say that. Convicting love is the pure love of God that comes so pure that it burns like a hot poker heated seven times hotter and it burns the sin it isolates it and incinerates it the convicting love of God's look and gaze doesn't refuse refuse to see the sin no no it doesn't ignore it or look the other way my dear friend with a laser focus it sees it and it sears it And as a result of His loving eyes, you're broken before God's gaze. You're like a criminal caught in the very act, frozen in time, just waiting for the hammer of the law to fall upon you. But it doesn't fall. Instead, an immeasurable river and flow of unbelievable mercy comes to you. You feel love so amazing, so divine. This is the kind of love that convinces you of your sin and renders you without excuse or deniability. You see yourself in His eyes. And you see yourself without your fancy cover-up and self-righteousness and better than you really are, personal opinion of yourself. No, you see all the ugliness and the vileness and the sin that He sees. No, He doesn't excuse it, friend. Not at all. But the look of Christ is full of love. And that is its power. That's its power. When he sets his gaze upon you, you're made to know a love that, while it doesn't excuse you, it doesn't condemn you either. It's an amazing kind of love. A love that censures and consoles both at the same time. It's such a different and unusual kind of love. I maintain that the moment you first experience the love of God like this... You're tempted to say, I've never been loved before this. 
You feel like you've never been loved. That's what's so convicting about it. You sinned against the Lord Jesus, but He's loving you with such a pure love that you're melted down, and now you realize just how undeserved you are, and you've done nothing to contribute to His love. Nothing. It's a love that you didn't, you didn't seek. It sought you out because that's its nature. I love the, the hymn of John Newton looking to the cross. I'm indebted to Brother Daniel Freeland who this week posted it to our signal group providentially just for me and this message, I believe. Listen carefully. It describes this look that both censures and consoles both rebukes and redeems. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me. As near the cross I stood, sure never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to change, excuse me, it seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned my guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilled and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus while his death my sins displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. And it does. This is what Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus. Have you ever been loved by God even in your sin? (laughs) Nothing as humiliating and at the same time more comforting than to be loved by Him whom, against, uh, whom you have just sinned against. My dear friend, this love is more than a theological fact lodged in your brain. Listen carefully. Peter's theology, most important, had to somehow translate into experience. Otherwise, his humiliation would have drowned him. Condemnation would have wrapped itself around his ankles and pulled him down to hell like it did Judas. Oh, yes, he knew that Christ loved him and the other disciples, but that kind of knowledge unaccompanied by reality will leave your soul in the sift of Satan. As Peter, you need to experience it for yourself here this morning. Right now, call on him. He will answer you. He is near to your call. How can I experience this, Brother Michael? First, first, real simple. Even a child here can do this. Any of you children yet to be a Christian, listen carefully. Here's what you do. First, by faith, believe that you're absolutely broken and you can't fix you. Pretty simple. But yet, so hard, isn't it? To believe that you're absolutely broken apart from the strength of God. And so I say, my friend, please, at this moment, wrap your arms around your poverty and spirit and hold it as you would a cherished treasure. 
wrap yourself around your inability to serve the king this morning. That is your only plea. That is the justification to come to a God. Your need of Him. Why? It's your need that has drawn the attention of His love and motivated Him to leave the royal throne of heaven to come and pursue you even to this meeting here this morning. It's no accident you're here listening to this gospel. None whatsoever. This is an appointment from heaven, whether you realize it or not, whether your intellectual knowledge is able to compute that or not. I'm telling you, it is the truth whether you believe it or not. You're here by divine appointment. And I'm just simply asking you, here's the way. If you want to experience the love of God, see the truth about yourself that apart from His great love, you have nothing wherewithal to please Him or serve Him. You see, this is not about your love for God. Oh, if I could help you to overcome this. This is not about your love for God. It's all about His great love for you. George Mueller described an experience that was life-changing and one that deepened his walk with God. And when he was asked what was the secret of his years of service, listen to his answer. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my Brethren and friends. That's a hard one right there. Even to the approval or blame of my brethren and friends. And since then I've studied only to show myself approved unto God. That happened years after his conversion, by the way. I'm not advocating crisis experiences or second blessings or anything like that. I'm just simply saying there's got to be a day where you see the love of God like Peter saw it, completely undeserved. And I think our text is the day when Peter died, utterly died, died to Peter. So number one, embrace your weakness, embrace your, embrace your sins, embrace your inability to please God. And then second, second, and this is all I'm going to give you. One, two, soak your mind in the Word of God about God's great love for you until your heart is soaked in faith, trusting that God does love you. The mind is involved. The intellect is necessary. You've got to get it into the cerebral, to the, to the cranium of this mind that yes, this book over and again proves the love of God. I see it. I, I cannot dispute it. And you soak the mind until the heart is soaked with faith. Hmm. And the moment you truly trust God's love for you, the love of God will be experienced. May I dare say it? You will feel it. Yes, feel it. It's the men and women who've not only who were intellectually convinced of God's love, but those who strongly felt His love for them that's made the most difference. They are the most fruitful ones. Have you ever heard of a man named William Guthrie? A 17th century Scottish covenanter. 
In his book, The Christian's Great Interest, here's what he wrote. I speak with the experience of many saints, and I hope according to the Scriptures, if I say there's a communication of the Spirit of God, which is sometimes vouchsafed, meaning graciously given, to some of His people that is somewhat besides, if not beyond, but witnessing of a sonship spoken of before. In other words, this communication from the Spirit to your heart is about His love for you and that you are His child. He goes on to say, it's a glorious divine manifestation of God into the soul, shedding abroad God's love in the heart. It's a thing better felt than spoke up. It's no audible voice, but it is a ray of glory filling the soul with God as He's life, light, love, and liberty. Why don't we say things like that today? Why in our Reformed circles are we so afraid to talk about something that is experiential? My goodness, what can be more experiential than the new birth itself? Meeting Christ, saving encounter. The name of Christmas Evans doesn't probably ring with many of you. Most of you probably never heard of the Welshman of the late 18th century. He was born on Christmas Day, 1766, hence his given name, Christmas. He's known as the John Bunyan of Wales. And before he was ordained in 1790 by the Baptist, Evans preached for three years. This is a Christian man, a preacher. But he preached with very little success and often played with doubts about his salvation. Two years later, at the age of 26, Christmas Evans began to preach on the island of Anglesey, just off the coast of Wales. And while there, he soon became engulfed in a doctrinal controversy which robbed him of his joy in God. And so he began to seek God for the reflaming of his heart. Pastors, I would suggest that for you and me, to go into the closet of prayer and not come out until our hearts are burning again. And here's what he wrote about what happened. I quote, See if you can hear yourself in it. I was weary of a cold heart towards Christ, His atonement and the work of the Holy Spirit. I was weary of a cold heart in the pulpit, in secret prayer, and in study, especially when I remembered that for 15 years before my heart had been burning within me as if I were on the way toward Emmaus with Jesus. A day came at last, a day ever to be remembered by me. After I had commenced praying in the name of Jesus, I soon felt as if the shackles were falling off and as if the mountains of snow and ice were melting within me. Anybody here would love that experience this morning? My tears flowed copiously, and I was constrained to cry aloud and pray for the gracious visits of God, for the joy of His salvation, and that He would again visit the churches in Anglesey, that they were under my care. That happened, that lasted for about three hours, and He said this, I finally gave myself up wholly to Christ, body, soul, talents, and labors all my life, every day and every hour that remained to me, and all my cares I entrusted into the hands of Christ. After that fresh experience of the Holy Spirit, Evans experienced new power and a great move of the Spirit. A awakening came upon the whole island and eventually swept Wales. Oh, friends, do you not see why I say this is the cure for the hour? It's always been. It's always been. Well, there's one final note I must sound. And it's a simple deduction from the text. 
We know the moment that Peter denied Jesus the third time, but the Lord turned and looked at Peter. But in order for Peter to see the gaze of Jesus' loving eyes, Peter had to turn and look to Jesus. Oh, dear friend, turn and look. Turn. Look, look, get your eyes off of you. Quit looking at you. Quit looking at your performance, good or bad. Both are dangerous. Both are damning. Look at him. Look into his wonderful face. Have you sinned and failed again? Remember, this is not about your love for Jesus. You've already proven you don't love him much. This is about his great love for you. Look away from yourself, your sin, and your failure. Look into his blessed face and be transformed by the power of his unconditional love for you. It's only when you give up trying to be more loving that God, God's love can really touch you. It's only when you come to him in the thick of your failures that his love will transform you. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Will you come? Will you this moment make where you're seated an altar between you and God? Turn from your sin. Turn from your coldness of heart. Turn from your lackadaisical Christianity. Turn from your false doctrine of a normal Christianity that's really subnormal and abnormal. Turn to Christ. Look and pray and seek the face of God that your eyes would meet with His and that He and His look of transforming love will continue its work of sanctifying, converting, and empowering you. One more time I say, look up, my friend. Look to Christ. Amen. Let's look and pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if God has spoken to you and made you to know beyond just intellectual understanding that there is something He has in His heart towards you, oh, friend, be encouraged. Run to Jesus. Tell Him. Embrace your weakness right now. Don't make bargains. Don't try to convince Him you'll do better. No, 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 no. Just let Him love on you. Father, thank You for manifesting Yourself and Your great love for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals Your heart to us, Your children. Lord, we confess 
We've been trying to maneuver and operate by our love for You. And we have found it a fuel insufficient for the Christian life. We want to return to what we heard last night. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ liveth in me. Do it, Lord, right now. Do it for those who are undeserved. Do it for all of us. Meet with us here. Turn this place upside down just by the glance of your loving eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.